From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Our world often seems to be really divided. Everyone seems to play by different rules. But today, we're going to hear from a researcher who believes that there are actually some universal moral rules that have embraced by pretty much every society. Then we'll chat with a surgeon who's identified a significant warning sign for patients who may have difficulty with addiction. The cognitive anthropologist and the research surgeon, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on this program, we bring together two researchers who come from vastly different fields of science, but who are both doing brilliant, sometimes world-changing work. And I feel really lucky because I get to spend a little time with each of them one-on-one to ask questions about their lives, their research, and their plans for changing the world even more in the future. But my favorite part of this program each week is what happens next when I introduce them to one another and I get to be a part of an even bigger and better conversation, a conversation in which some really profound questions are often asked and when some pretty amazing connections are often made. Joining us today from the University of Oxford is Oliver Scott Curry, who is part of a team of researchers whose recent report in the journal Current Anthropology reveals the existence of seven moral rules, a code of sorts that exists all over the world. Oliver, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. My pleasure. Also joining us on the line from Michigan, where she is a general surgery resident at the University of Michigan and a research fellow at the Opioid Prescribing Engagement Network, is Callista Harbaugh. She helped author a recent paper in the American Medical Association Journal Surgery that reveals that having a family member with persistent opioid use may be a risk factor for those who struggle with getting off opioids after surgery. Callista, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start today with a conversation about morality. Everybody's the same, saying things they shouldn't say. Everybody is the same, try to win and lose again. That is the Flemish singer-songwriter Jasper Erkins singing Everybody is the Same from the album The Brighter Side. And from a biological perspective, yeah, we're pretty much all the same. We share about 99.9% of our genes, and we use those genes in pretty much the same ways as we move through gestational development from birth to adulthood and as we age from there on out. But when we look at our social lives and cultures, things get to feeling a lot different. And these days, it often seems when it comes to the moral compasses that guide our lives, we couldn't be more different. Well, my first guest thinks that might not be the case. His research suggests that there are actually seven moral rules that are embraced by every culture in the world. Those rules are help your family, help your group, return favors, be brave, defer to superiors, divide resources fairly, and respect others' property. Oliver Scott Curry, let's talk about how you went about finding these rules. You reviewed ethnographic accounts dealing with ethics from 60 different societies. Can you give us an idea of the diversity of all of these societies? They really ran the whole gamut. So we went to something called the, the Human Relations Area Files, which is a big archive at Yale of sort of all the ethnographies that have ever been written. We focused on, on 60 societies, about 10 from each continent. There were some hunter-gatherers, some pastoralists, some agriculturalists, and, and a few uh, more modern societies. So really the, the whole range. And let's break down these moral ideas. The first, the first is that you should help your family. I guess, I guess that makes a lot of sense. 
But the next is that you should help your group. How, how does the group differ from the family? Well, you're related to your family, whereas you're, you're not typically related to members of your group, or rather forming teams to work together can extend beyond the family. Just to make this clear, you found this in all of the societies that you looked at, all 60 of these societies. That's why we call these universal rules, right? We found most of them in most places. We didn't observe every single one in every society because the ethnographic record is fairly patchy. We found them sort of evenly distributed all around the world. And crucially, we didn't find any counterexamples. Returning favors was another of the rules. This one, well, I suppose it surprised me a little, although I'm not quite sure why. Is there different ways in which this moral rule gets implemented from culture to culture? Well, certainly. So, but it might be useful to just take a bit, a little bit of a step back. So, the project didn't necessarily start with the with the ethnographic accounts. We we had a prior theory of what we were looking for. We were interested in what morality is and and how it works and where it comes from. And recently, there's been lots of good evolutionary and game theory explanations. One objection to these different explanations of different types of morality is that well, maybe they're they're merely Western views of morality. They're very ethnocentric. Some of the fringes of social anthropology have argued that, you know, for any, any given rule you propose, you, you will be able to find the opposite somewhere in the world. So we thought, well, fair enough. We, not, we weren't sure about how widespread these rules were. So we, we decided to find out. And, that, and that's when we came to the archive to see just how prevalent these different rules were. Now, when you say you went into the archive, I, I, I don't assume there's like actually a section in each ethnographic account that lists rules, or, or maybe I'm incorrect. Is, is, there a, is there a rules section in each account, or did you have to dive into the narratives quite a bit? For the most part, we were combing through pages and pages of material, just looking for any indication that one or other of these seven moral rules was, was present in the, in the society. For a lot of the time, it was looking for a needle in a haystack. Were there other rules that you discovered that applied to many societies and that you started looking for in others, but you couldn't find evidence of them or that you found counterexamples of in a very small number of societies? And so you had to take them off the list? We, we started off looking for these seven particular moral rules. These are, these are moral rules that there's a good background theory for. And so they're the, they're the ones we were looking for. And we found those all over the place. We certainly encountered some other moral rules that weren't part of our original seven, rules to do with telling the truth or being generous and charitable, being hospitable and, and some other things. But, but they weren't the focus of our original study, but they're something that we might come back to in the future. Another of the rules that I suppose I wasn't surprised by, but maybe I felt a little disappointed by, was this cultural mandate to defer to superiors. We're hardwired, yes. it seems, to accept leaders and let them make decisions for us. So that's the flip side of bravery. So if we think that people have, have earned their status, if they are genuinely tough, they're genuinely brave, they're, they're genuinely high status, generally magnanimous, then we tend to respond by respecting them, by, by admiring them, by deferring to them. That's the, the sort of the flip side of the strategy that resolves the conflict. In another sense, it also means, for example, being humble by, by being aware of your weakness, your, your limitations, and not seeking to get into fights that you couldn't win, for example, or the virtues of being a good loser. Perhaps the most surprising moral rule to me was the one that you identified, which is divide resources fairly. And, and I guess this was surprising because, well, throughout history, including this point in time in our history, we've demonstrated a sometimes really poor ability to do that. 
I mean, that's another issue. So we, we've identified that these are things that people think are morally good to do, but it's not, it doesn't necessarily follow that people will always live up to these ideals. And so people still behave badly, even if they have the same criteria of what it, what it means to be bad or what it means to be good. But in terms of just dividing things fairly, again, there's a difference between how an entire society or a government might redistribute things fairly and the sort of the, the everyday sense of fairness that we were looking at. And certainly that kind of intuition that we, we can settle this by being fair, by coming to terms, by dividing the resource rather than keeping fighting to try and get all of it is, is very widespread, very common. We know that there's a heredity to culture. Do you have an idea about when and where these rules emerged? Did they start before our species began to disperse from Africa? And is that why we see these similar rules everywhere? Or did these rules evolve later on sort of in the way that species convergently evolved to meet similar needs faced by all human cultures? I think it's a bit of both. So I think our, our morals are a combination of nature and nurture. So humans have lived in social groups for about 50 million years. And during that time, we've evolved a range of cooperative dispositions to solve these social problems or to take advantage of these opportunities for cooperation. And we share a lot of them with, uh, with other social species. Uh, humans have had a, uh, quite a big sort of upgrade in that software. So now we're exceptionally good at cooperating and we value those traits in ourselves and others very highly. We're also very inventive species, and we've invented new ways of doing things, new ways of cooperating, and, and passed them on, which is what we call culture. And those sort of new inventions, those new, those new cultural technologies have expanded our ability to cooperate and expanded what it means to be more. That's Oliver Scott Curry, who was part of a team of researchers whose recent report in the journal Current Anthropology reveals the existence of seven universal moral rules. Oliver, would you stay on the line for a bit as I chat with our next guest? Of course. My drug dealer was a doctor, doctor, had the plug from Big Pharma, Pharma. He said that he would heal me, heal me, but he only gave me problems, problems. My drug dealer was a doctor. That is singer Ariana Dabu in the track Drug Dealer, which laments the myriad reasons for America's opioid epidemic. Our next guest research has suggested that long-term use of opioid painkillers may be a family affair, or to be specific, among people ages 13 to 21 who were being dis- uh, who were being prescribed an opioid for the first time after a procedure, the presence of a family member who was a long-term user of opioids nearly doubled the rate at which they would still be being prescribed that drug three or more months after surgery. Calista Harbaugh, before getting into the study itself, let's start with why data like this is important. You are a research fellow at the Opioid Prescribing Engagement Network, which is focused on identifying and sharing strategies to prevent dependence. And I suppose data is important for palliative solutions, too. But what makes it so vital for preventative efforts? Obviously, when we look back and we see that opioid prescriptions have more than quadrupled over the last few decades, it makes us really start to question all of those prescriptions we write. Now, from the surgical standpoint, you know, like you said, I'm a surgery resident. I write for a lot of opioid prescriptions because I inflict pain on people. And so it's really important to use data like this to start to understand what is the role that each of us play in the overall opioid epidemic. 
Now, you worked from a pretty good-sized data set. Uh, it was more than a quarter of a million patients who had their first ever opioid prescription filled. The association you found, the higher rate of long-term use among patients who had family members with long-term use, did that come from looking broadly at the data and then narrowing your focus? Or is it something that you were specifically looking for before diving into this data set? We started by looking at three to six months after surgery because for most of these procedures, you should be healed by three months. And we started to look at this in teens because we thought, you know, this is a really vulnerable population. These are kids that may be getting their first ever exposure to an opioid because of that operation. And there's really not a lot of data that describes what happens to them in the long term. In this population, especially in teens, there are so many external factors that could also potentially play a role in whether or not they continue to fill opioids. There's a number of reasons why we could expect that family members may play an important role. So you found this correlation, and it wasn't a small one at all. It's about 2.4% of first-time users of prescription opioids are still using them three or more months later, versus 4.1% among those with a family member who has a history of long-term use of opioids. Do we know why? There's, there's a nature-nurture question here, I think. Yeah, I think that you're totally right. And I'll preface this with that is a major limitation of the data that we use. We can look at opioid fills and we can look at other diagnoses of patients, but we can't necessarily tease apart all of these reasons why. We know that there's uh, genetic polymorphisms that are associated with chronic pain and with uh, opioid metabolism that can run in families. Other studies looking at other types of substance use have found that parenting behaviors um, and the environment that a child is raised in is associated with whether or not they use other substances. Um, and lastly, there's also some studies that have looked at parent perceptions of the risk of pain versus the risk of the opioid that impacts the decision to administer opioids. So there's a number of reasons why we might see this. And whatever the cause was, now that we know this, what would you like to see individual prescribers and health networks do with this information? The way we constructed this was analogous to a clinically relevant question. So regardless of why we see that association, this is a question that I can ask of my patients and families when I'm prescribing. Are there any other members in the family who are currently on opioids? And that really takes us to what the next step of this is, is that a lot of the efforts around the opioid epidemic are working on decreasing opioid prescribing, and that's super important and that can't stop. But we need to start to understand which patients are going to be at higher risk of adverse outcomes in the long term so that we can institute plans to screen for when we're starting to see concerning patterns of opioid fills and to intervene to help those patients get help. In August, you and your colleagues pointed out that about 80% of patients fill a prescription for an opioid after wisdom tooth removal, which, if you've had your wisdom teeth removed, makes a lot of sense. You found, though, that the decision to fill a prescription was associated with being younger, being female, with having higher rates of depression and anxiety and chronic pain. And correct me if I'm wrong, but some of those attributes sure sound like they might be risk factors for addiction. Looking at wisdom teeth was really interesting because that's a population where there are randomized controlled studies comparing opioids versus non-opioid analgesics used in combination. And those studies have found that non-opioids used in combination are equally as effective, if not better, at controlling the pain after a procedure. The difference between that study and this study is that study was limited to patients who had a wisdom tooth extraction. In that study, we looked at patients that did and did not fill. 
This study for the family um, paper includes patients who underwent a wide variety of procedures. Some of those, um, there is not a lot of evidence to say whether an opioid is appropriate and how much opioid is appropriate. In addition to being a researcher, you're a surgical resident at the University of Michigan. What drew you to opioid research? Broadly, I'm interested in how we start to think about surgery rather than an episode, but really a time point in the entire arc of care and the long-term trajectory of these patients. And, and that's really important when you think about teens. Who Anybody who's gone to high school remembers that that can be a very difficult time of life. And you think about it, and they come into a healthcare system, otherwise healthy kids that get appendicitis or break an arm. It's an opportunity that we have to start thinking about how can we sort of improve their life in the long term, not just get them through this brief time point. And opioids are a perfect example of that. Until recently, as we started to see these numbers continue to rise in terms of the opioid epidemic, we didn't realize the impact that every prescription can have. That really struck me because as a surgery resident, I've written for a lot of those prescriptions, and I don't know what's happened to those patients, and I don't know what's happened to those pills. But now across the board, as doctors are starting to realize this, we're, we're trying to do the right thing. So I think it's just a huge opportunity that, that I have both on an individual level, but then also on a research level to impact care on a, a larger scale in ways that help them not just now, but in the long run. That's Calista Harbaugh, whose recent research reveals that having a family member with persistent opioid use may be a risk factor for long-term use. Calista, our other guest has been holding the line. Can I introduce you? Absolutely. Well, Calista, this is moral code discoverer Oliver Curry. And Oliver, this is surgeon and opioid researcher Calista Harbaugh. Hello, Calista. Nice to meet you. Hello, Oliver. Nice to meet you, too. Let me ask both of you this first. Your areas of research make observations about the world as it is and raise questions about where these things came from. Calissa, your research shows a tendency for long-term opioid use to run in families, but we don't know if that's nature or nurture or a little bit of both. And Oliver, your work demonstrates a profound alignment of seven moral rules among dozens of societies, but we also can't say whether that comes from a single point of origin or whether those rules evolve separately in all of these different places. As scientists, I imagine you're, well, you're a little like me in that you want to know the answer to the question, why? Is it frustrating to have the answer to that question hanging there, or is it invigorating? What do you guys think? That's why we're in this business, because we get we get a chance to try and answer some of those questions. So it would be extremely unlikely that morals, at least, were com- completely nurtured. They might be, but it would be very surprising if natural selection had taken a social primate, completely wiped out all of its social instincts, and then allowed it to rediscover them all over again. There's almost definitely some genes involved. Another study I'm involved in at the moment will hopefully shed some light on that. We're doing uh, a twin study to look at the heritability of these different moral values. It's been so interesting listening to Oliver's work because I, I wonder if some of his work can help to shed some of the light on some of the whys in terms of why we see these patterns within families, but then also why we see prescribing uh, in different ways from providers. So I had a, uh, just a question for you, Calista. So it sounds like you've given yourself a bit of a moral dilemma because if you're not sure what the cause of this association is, it's not clear how it might change what you prescribe. So if someone is more likely to carry on using opioids because um, a lower pain tolerance runs in the family, then it would be legitimate to give them a bit more opioids because they have that particular sensitivity, as opposed to if they're more likely to use opioids for longer because of some salubrious background or something illicit going on, then you'd be less likely to 
prescribe opioids. But at the moment, it's a it's a bit of a toss up. So just you kind of come back to square one, or, or do you? Yeah, I think that's a really great point, and that has been at the core of as we find all of these pieces, is balancing the fact that the opioid has analgesic benefit, potentially, but it also carries a lot of potential risk. And so, you know, I would kind of say that I think every prescription and deciding how much to prescribe is, is a moral dilemma, especially in the absence of evidence. Because for some procedures, like we were talking about wisdom teeth, there is evidence that has compared the use of different types of pain medications for the treatment of pain. But on the other hand, for most of the procedures that we're prescribing for, there's not really great evidence that says the opioid really does any better of job treating the pain than other medications do, especially when you think about that the reason a lot of that pain happens is because of inflammation. And opioid does not treat inflammation, but anti-inflammatories do. But getting back to what you were saying, you know, I think that's a really great question is, you know, some of these prescriptions, is it because these patients legitimately have pain and need more prescriptions or do these prescriptions represent a problem, either that the patient's no longer taking them for the pain of the surgery I prescribed them for in the first place, or is this prescription even being taken by somebody else in the family, which we can't tell that from the data set we have. So, you know, I think you're totally right. There's a hundred moral dilemmas when you think about every opioid prescription. Our primary outcome here was looking at persistent use, which was a fill between three and six months. And so for these procedures, even if a patient has lower pain tolerance, if they didn't have sort of um, some prolonged complication in course, which for most of these procedures, their body should have healed from the surgery by that point. So it's unlikely that any prescriptions filled at that longer term were really related to the initial surgery itself. And I just had a point of information question. So how bad is it to go beyond three months using opioids. I mean, how, how bad is it to, to use opioids for four months as opposed to three months? Those people that carry on using it, what percentage of them go on to have really serious problems or sort of full-on addictions? There's not a lot of evidence out there to say, like, this is the time point at which it becomes a problem. And all of these definitions we have created or they've created in the literature to start to pick apart what are markers of long-term risk. We do know that, for example, in adults, they've looked at sort of the longer-term trajectory, and a number of studies have used different definitions in terms of both shorter-term time points, like we have from three to six months, others up to a year. You know, every one of these kids filling between three and six months, it may not become a problem. The real problems are probably not the prescriptions that are coming from a doctor. They're probably the prescriptions that are obtained from other sources. Those are the ones we worry about, the ones that are used from a non-monitored setting and that we can't measure, and we don't capture any of that in these databases. I was wondering, because so much of, of the work that we're sort of, as you've pointed out, what we're trying to sort of balance is the perception of risk of one entity, like pain, versus the perception of risk of another, like opioids. And I was wondering, when you're making these moral decisions, how does the perception of risk play into that? I haven't looked into it specifically, but generally, the way I think about these moral rules is they're not, as it were, set in stone. They're attempts to cooperate. Their theories about about how to behave that will bring about these mutually beneficial outcomes. But there's no guarantee that they will always work under every circumstance, uh, and especially under circumstances they weren't designed for. So we might have some moral instincts that work very well in small face-to-face groups, but they don't work very well in you know enormous anonymous conurbations or when you're dealing with with medical technology, for example. In those situations, your first instincts might not work very well, and that's where culture comes in. 
so much of it, I think, is really a product of, of culture and the way that we perceive both pain and opioids and how that culture influences the decisions that both clinicians and, and patients make. You know, I, it seems like some of the moral rules could potentially explain some of the associations we see. Was there anything that sort of stood out to your mind in terms of when we start to think about the next steps for our research and understanding that why that stuck out to you? Yeah, I suppose it would be interesting to know if people are sharing opioids with their family. Are they trying to be um, benevolent because they know someone else has a problem and they, they're sort of sharing what they've been given? Or is it sort of less noble than that and people are just sort of doing it, doing it for kicks? Or they're sort of willing to give other people the opioids knowing it would be interesting to know what the motivations were behind people continuing to use or, sh- or share them. Calista, when we're dealing with issues like pain, like addiction, family interactions, when we're trying to best understand how to persuade individuals and systems to change the way they do something, something like prescribing dangerously addictive painkillers, for instance, how helpful do you think it is to have a starting place of moral values that seems to transcend cultures like the one that Oliver developed? I think ultimately that's at the core of changing practice. It also is at the core of why practice doesn't change at times. I think for the vast majority of clinicians, they're not prescribing from this place of knowing what the long-term risk is. They're prescribing from the place of treating the short-term pain. I think it's also a really important reminder as we're making change that the goal is not to decrease opioid prescribing and leave people in pain. It's to decrease the overall risk that we actually cause a dangerous and life-threatening problem in a patient when that medication was potentially not needed at all. I think you're following Oliver's second rule, which is take care of your group. We're just about out of time. Oliver, Scott Curry, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And Calista Harbaugh, thank you. Thank you very much. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.